Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much for the invitation, and it's great to be back with Advent Hope. I'm sorry it couldn't be in person, but I'm glad we can at least do it like this. So why don't we have a word of prayer, and we will get into our message for today. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together this Sabbath morning. I just pray for a special blessing as we study your word. I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would be with each person who is listening. May we all <clears throat> hear what you would have us to learn today, and may we be prepared for your soon coming as my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last night I spoke about prophetic par peril in America. Today we're looking at the prophetic destiny of Adventism. It's amazing to see what the book of Revelation describes with respect to America in prophecy, to the French Revolution in prophecy, and to the Second Advent Movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Bible prophecy. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. I'm very excited about this presentation. We're going to go through Revelation 10 and connect it to Abraham, and we're going to see some amazing connections here. So what I want you to do is, if you have your Bibles, I want you to, to turn to Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 to start off. Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 says, And the angel <clears throat> which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Here we see an angel lift up his hand to heaven, and he swears by him that lives forever and ever. Now, we know who this angel is, because this angel is the mighty angel that is seen in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10. And this mighty angel is Jesus Christ. If you've studied Revelation 10, you know that the mighty angel is Jesus Christ. So the angel who stands upon the sea and upon the earth and lifts up his hand to heaven, this is Jesus Christ lifting up his hand to heaven. And he swears by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are in the earth and the things that therein are in the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Clearly... This is connecting to the first angel's message to, that talks about worshiping God, the creator who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and so in the fountains of waters. And so we see a connection to the first angel's message, and we see Jesus, he's swearing by the creator. Well, when I look in scripture, Jesus is the creator. So Jesus is swearing by himself. So this is very interesting to see what's happening here. Whenever Jesus swears by an oath, and especially when he swears by an oath where he swears by himself, we know that what he is about to see, say has utmost significance. And so we're going to come back to what he says here a little bit later, but I'm just giving you that as a foundation for where we are headed. Now, when you look at Revelation chapter 10, for example, in the scope of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10 is between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And you have the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets in the first half of the book of Revelation. And so Revelation chapter 10 is taking place at the end or toward the end of the seven trumpets. It's interesting at the beginning of the trumpets, 
in Revelation chapter 8, you see an angel with a censer in his hand. And this is Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 3. It says, Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. This is at the altar of incense in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And then you see that this angel there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. This work that the angel is doing at the beginning of the seven trumpets is the work of the high priest. It's the work of intercession. So the angel at the beginning of the seven trumpets is Jesus, the high priest. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is an angel at the beginning of the seven trumpets. This is important. He's the beginning. He's the angel at the beginning of the seven trumpets as high priest. At the end of the seven trumpets, he's identified as the mighty angel who was the high priest at the beginning of the seven trumpets. Now, if you've studied the seven trumpets, you'll understand that at the end of the sixth trumpet, you have the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1840, August 11, 1840. So the timing of this mighty angel coming down from heaven is around the time that the Ottoman Empire falls in 1840. You can read about that in Great Controversy, page 334 on your own time. So... The Ottoman Empire falls, and around the year 1840, Jesus, the mighty angel, comes down from heaven. And you can see the work that he is going to do based on his description. He's clothed with a cloud, just as he was clothed with a cloud above the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary in, in the Old Testament. And a rainbow is upon his head. We see a rainbow in Revelation 4 above the throne of God. His face shines like the sun, just as it does in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is the son of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4. And his feet are like pillars of fire, just as you have the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is clearly sanctuary language because Jesus was the angel at the beginning of the seven trumpets in the holy place as the high priest. Now he comes down from heaven around the year 1840 as the mighty angel clothed with a cloud. So this is sanctuary language, meaning that he started in the seven trumpets in the holy place. But now that he's clothed with a cloud, he's announcing that he's moving from the holy place to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And that lines up very nicely with our understanding of the 2300-day prophecy that takes us to 1844. And then the rainbow above his head, the rainbow is a symbol of the covenant. He's going to renew the covenant with his people from the most holy place where he will write his law into our hearts and minds. That includes the fourth commandment, the seventh, com excuse me, the fourth commandment, the seventh day being the Sabbath to keep it holy. And his face shines like the sun, the sun of righteousness. He's going to be, bring righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, as a revelation to the world. And verse 2, it says, he had in his hand a little book open. You almost know already what book is open based on the description of who Jesus is in verse 1. Jesus is being described with sanctuary language in verse 1 of Revelation 10. So the book that is open would inevitably point to this time period of Earth's history. It's around the time of 1840 going into 1844, pointing to the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, specifically in the most holy place where the sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed. And sure enough, the little book that is open in the hand of Jesus is a book that had been closed, but now it's open for understanding. And that's the portion of the book of Daniel that had been sealed until the time of the end. 
And with the message in the book of Daniel that was unsealed, pointing to the sanctuary message, Jesus is, is announcing here in Revelation 10 in the era of 1840 by coming down from heaven that he is raising up a new movement. Just as he raised up the children of Israel to go from Egypt to Canaan, and he led them through the wilderness and gave, him an under, gave them an understanding of who he is through the sanctuary message, he's raising up this movement to lead them from earth to the, the well, spiritual Egypt, which would be this earth, to the heavenly Canaan. Uh, up in heaven. And so this is what we see happening here in Revelation 10. Jesus is the leader of this new movement, and with the message of the unsealed book of Daniel, he's raising up this movement with the understanding of the 2300-day prophecy to prepare people for the second coming of Jesus. So when we get to verses 5, 6, and 7, we see the significant point that he lifts up his hand to heaven. He's standing upon the sea and upon the earth, meaning this is a worldwide message, and he lifts up his hand to heaven, and he swears by himself. Now, when Jesus swears by himself, you know that what he is saying here is of, of utmost importance. Every word in Scripture is important. When the Bible says, God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, you can take that to the bank. That is the sure word of God. But when Jesus swears by himself, he is making an oath that he wants us to understand very clearly. And what I'm going to show you through the remaining portion of this message is that this oath that Jesus swears by is the final oath of three oaths by which he swears by himself in how he shows it's one of the ways that he shows that he's going to defeat Satan in the great controversy, and this is the prophetic destiny of Adventism, this third and final oath, but it builds upon the two oaths that have come before it. So we're going to come back and look at this oath, which we see in verses 5, 6, and 7, and we'll understand this third oath, we'll understand this third oath much better when we look at the first and the second oath that Christ has sworn by. And so we're going to start by going to Genesis chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to look at the story of Abraham. And in this story, it's interesting, Abraham has had Isaac by now. And in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that he would have a child from his own flesh. And then in chapter 16, Abraham takes the promises of God and pulls out what we call an old covenant maneuver, where as the children says, all that the children of Israel say, all that the Lord has said we will do when they heard the Ten Commandments. This is what Abraham does in Genesis 16. He listens to the advice of Sarah, and he has a son named Ishmael through his servant Hagar. The book of Galatians chapter 4 identifies Hagar and Ishmael as a symbol of the Old Covenant. That's what the Bible says. When Isaac is born, he becomes a symbol of the New Covenant because this is the work that God does in Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't do it in and of themselves. It was only a work that God could do. That's a symbol of the New Covenant. So God has promised to Abraham in the book of Genesis that in Isaac 
the promise that he has given that in Abraham all nations of the earth would be blessed and it would be through Isaac that this promise would be fulfilled. Abraham basically thinks that the purpose for his life has been fulfilled. Isaac is alive. The promise has been fulfilled and he's living out his life. And then Genesis 22 comes along and in Genesis 22 verse 2, God says, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. And so God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, this offering is taking place because... God is proving to the onlooking universe that, that Abraham truly is the father of those who have faith. Because the onlooking universe, the angels and the unfallen beings, could say, what evidence do we really have that Abraham is a man of faith? I mean, he's made mistakes at every step of his life. He had Ishmael, he lied to the king of Egypt, and all of those things. So what evidence do we have? So in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham in the most trying way possible. It's interesting, he told Abraham that he would have a child from his own flesh. But in Genesis 22, he simply tells him, offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, on the three-day journey, Abraham has a lot of time to think about what's happening. And in Hebrews 11, it's interesting, Paul tells us in Hebrews 11 that Abraham had such faith that he believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead. But God didn't promise Abraham specifically that there would be a resurrection of Isaac. But Abraham's faith was that God calleth those things which be not as though they were. Therefore, he's going to raise Abraham from the dead, or he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And that's going to have to take place because God said that Isaac would be who the seed would be fulfilled through, who the promises would be fulfilled through. So if, if all nations of the earth will be blessed through me and it will be fulfilled through Isaac, if I'm going to put Isaac to death, he's going to have to be resurrected. So he gets to the final moment of truth where Isaac is obeying the word of his father and he raises the knife to slay his son Isaac. And in verse 11 it says, and the, this is Genesis 22, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven. Now again, when I was younger as a child, I used to think that this was just an angel speaking to Abraham. We're going to see that this is not just an angel. It says, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. So here's the message of fearing God. Seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now notice verse 13. Then it goes on down. Verse 15. Then it says, The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself... Have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because you have done this thing and have not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. So notice this. The angel of the Lord says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. This is the first oath where God swears by himself. Now, in case you're wondering who the angel of the Lord is, we go to Hebrews 6, which makes it very clear. So just turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Do you see that? In Genesis 22, it's the angel of the Lord who swore by himself. But 
Paul makes it abundantly clear in Hebrews 6 that this is God swearing by himself. Why does he swear by himself when he makes an oath? It's because he could swear by no greater. So he swears by an oath, and he says, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So God is swearing by an oath, and he is saying, Abraham, you have proved yourself here with your faith and your obedience. And I'm swearing by an oath that those who are your children will not simply be your children by blood, by the flesh. They will be your children by faith. And God is swearing by an oath, meaning he is guaranteeing that the children of Abraham will have the same faith that Abraham demonstrated when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, meaning that the children of Abraham will fear God and obey God to the same degree of faithfulness that Abraham did when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. So Abraham is the father of faith. And when he withheld nothing from God, including that which was dearest to him, he became an illustration and an example of all those who by faith follow God. And he especially becomes an illustration of faith for those who live at the end of the world. The ex experience of Abraham offering up Isaac was not just for Abraham as the father of faith. It's an experience in faith and obedience that all who have the faith of Abraham will have from his day to the end of the world. And so when Abraham demonstrated this faith, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, comes down from heaven and swears by an oath and says, By myself have I sworn, because I can swear by no greater, that in thee all nations of the earth will be blessed, and there will be people on this earth who will look to the example of obedience and faith that you have just given, and it will allow them and it will empower them to look to Jesus as well to exercise the same degree of faith and obedience. What a powerful illustration. And so it's so important that God himself swears by himself to say, I will have a people of faith like that who are the children of Abraham from this time to the end of the world. That's what God is saying. So we, we see this amazing story. And of course, there's illustrations in um, how God offered up his only son, Jesus, on the cross, and, and Jesus actually died. He wasn't spared. There's a lot of things you can do with that story. But that's what I'm looking at today, is the oath that God swore by. But, you know, this blessing that God swore by, that there would be children of Abraham who would live by the same faith, was especially designed for the nation of Israel. So you have Isaac, the son of Abraham, and you have Jacob, the son of Isaac, who becomes Israel, and his 12 sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And they were supposed to have the faith of Abraham and the obedience of Abraham. And God has sworn by an oath that those who are the children of Abraham would have the same degree of faith and obedience that Abraham did. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel forfeited the covenant. God gave them the Ten Commandments, and they said all that the Lord has said we will do. But they forfeited this covenant by idolatry. And ultimately, the children of Israel rejected the prince of the covenant, Jesus himself. And he's described as the prince of the covenant in Daniel eleven twenty two. So 
it led to the death of Jesus by the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. And so then in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, God moves to the next phase of the fulfillment of his promise. Yes, there were faithful Jews who accepted Jesus, but the nation as a whole rejected him. And so, and of course, you look at the ten northern tribes, they were taken away by the Assyrians, and then ultimately the Jews were destroyed by, destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So now you have this promise in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, which says, if you be Christ's, or if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now that promise, when it says your heirs or inheritors according to the promise, is that promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 22, that those who de demonstrate the same degree of faith and obedience that Abraham did will be his children. And the way we become children of Abraham through faith today is by belonging to Christ. If we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That same promise where Christ has sworn by an oath that he would have a people on the earth who would have faith and obedience to the degree that Abraham did when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. So here's the thing. That initial oath was confirmed by Christ's death on the cross. So the initial oath was confirmed by Christ's death on the cross. When Christ died, you know, an oath is confirmed by blood. So when Jesus died on the cross as the prince of the covenant, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the everlasting covenant that he made with Abraham, was confirmed by Christ's death. That guaranteed that the promise that God made to Abraham would for sure be fulfilled once Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus raises up the Christian church, starting with the 12 disciples, and then it spread to the then-known world. And so now if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, you're heirs according to the promise, but you look at history, you look at Revelation chapter 12, the Christian church largely forfeited the blessings of the covenant. You see that in Revelation 13 as well, where you have a professed Christian power in Revelation 13 and in Daniel chapter 7, who assumes the form of Christianity but speaks great words against the Most High, and rather than following the law of God and allowing the covenant to be fulfilled through the Christian church, where God writes his law into our hearts and minds, the Christian church claimed to have the authority to change God's covenant and to change the law of God. And so they spoke great words against the Most High, and so the Christian church, the the professed Christian church largely forfeited the blessings of the covenant. Yes, there was the true church that fled into the wilderness, but Christianity, professed Christianity at large, largely forfeited the blessings of the covenant. And so if you're looking at this promise that God has made to Abraham, you're left to wonder, saying God swore by an oath, and because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself that there would be a people on the earth who would be faithful and obedient, the way Abraham was faithful and obedient when he offered up Isaac. But the Israelites, they forfeited the covenant promise. They crucified the prince of the covenant. The Christian church, they forfeited 
the blessing of the covenant. They presume to change the law of God, which is the covenant of God, where God writes his law into our hearts and minds. The Christian church said we can change the law of God. So the Israelites go into idolatry. They crucify the prince of the covenant. The Christian church during the 1260 years change the covenant. They break the covenant by saying they can change the law of God. And so you're left to wonder, what happened to that promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 22? This is where we come now to Daniel chapter 12, and we see the second of three oaths that God makes. Now, in Daniel chapter 12, you'll see at the beginning of the chapter, Michael stands up, and Michael is Christ. Michael means one who is like God. And Michael was present with Gabriel at the beginning of the vision of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 in chapter 10. And so Daniel sees this great vision, and now it's time for the explanation. So in verse 5, it says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. Now these two heavenly beings are Christ and Gabriel because they were the ones that appeared to Daniel at the beginning of the vision, and now at the end of the vision, they're here to give Daniel some further information. So notice verse 6, it says, And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So the one who's asking the question would be Gabriel, and the man who is clothed in linen is Michael or Christ. Now notice verse 7. Verse 7 says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, so this is Christ here, He's clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and an half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished." So notice this, and in case you're wondering, you know, how do we know for sure that this is Christ, if you go back to Daniel chapter 10, um, you see um, verse 5, you see a certain man clothed in linen, and in verse 6 it says his body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet like and colored a polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. That's Christ. That's the pre-incarnate Christ clothed in linen. So then in Daniel 12, he's again clothed in linen, and he lifts up his hands again to heaven, and he swears by him that lives forever. This is God again. This is Christ again. Christ is God. He can swear by no greater, so he swears by himself. And this time, rather than swearing by an oath that in Abraham all nations of the earth would be blessed, and that those who are the children of Abraham will receive the same blessing, they'll be heirs of the promise, and that those who have faith and obedience like Abraham will receive the same blessing, he says something a little bit different, and this is very interesting what he says here. When he swears by an oath, he says that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. Now, that's the 1260 days, because a time is one year, times is two years, dividing of time or half a time is half a year. There's 360 days in a Jewish or biblical year. So time, times, and a half added together, 360 plus 720 is 1080 plus 180 is 1260. So that's the 1260 days, which is 1260 years. So now he's saying that it will be for a time, times, and a half, or 1260 years when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, and all these things shall be finished. Now, 
Now listen to this very carefully. The 1260-year prophecy is mentioned at least nine times in Daniel and Revelation, so it's a prophecy that everybody should understand. It's a prophecy that goes from 538 AD to 1798 AD. The five, in 538, there was the decree by Justinian that made the Bishop of Rome the head of all the churches. So this is the union of church and state. Church and state unite, but in 1798, church and state are torn apart. You have the deadly wound. When Napoleon sends his general Berthier into the Vatican, takes the Pope captive, Pius VI captive, in February of 1798, exactly 1260 years later. That's the 1260-year prophecy of papal supremacy. Why is Christ swearing by an oath by himself about the 1260 years? Well, here's why. Because, as I mentioned, God said, and he guaranteed by an oath, that he would have a people on the earth who would be faithful, like Abraham. But the children of Israel forfeited the covenant blessing. And then, after Jesus dies on the cross and he raises up the Christian church, the professed Christian church forfeits the blessing as well. And so Christ again swears by an oath. This is the second time he's like, look, I realize that I guaranteed by an oath that I would have a faithful people on the earth. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm guaranteeing you by an oath that, yes, my people will be scattered for 1,260 years. Yes, they will be scattered. But after 1,260 years, once we get to 1798, my people will be scattered no longer. After 1798, after the 1260 years of papal supremacy, I will begin to gather a people that will fulfill the oath that I made to Abraham way back in Genesis 22. After 1798, I am going to raise up a movement of people who will be the fulfillment of the everlasting covenant that I made in Genesis 22. And this is amazing, friends. This is what gets me excited to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Because once you see this second oath in Daniel chapter 12, where God God is guaranteeing that after 1798, after the 1260 years, his people will be scattered no longer. He will have a covenant people on the earth. Then it becomes very clear who this covenant people are. And that is where we come to Revelation 10. So you may have wondered what I was talking about at the beginning. Mighty angel comes down from heaven. He's moving from the holy place to the most holy place to renew a covenant where the rainbow is above his head, the rainbow symbolizes the covenant. Yeah, the covenant is where God writes his law into our hearts and minds. He's going to have a covenant people from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. But get this. Verse 5. We're going to see the third oath, and when you see this third oath, it's going to blow your mind. Just look at this. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever. There you see the same language as Daniel 12. You see the same language as Genesis 22. So this is Christ lifting up his hand to heaven. He's swearing by himself because he can swear by no greater. He swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Okay. So he's swearing by an oath that there's going to be time no longer. 
Now, if you see what's happening here in Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10, he's, he's opened this little book for understanding, which points to the 2300-day prophecy, which points us to 1844. And when he says that there should be time no longer, the word here in the Greek for time is chronos. Now, for some reason, the New King James Version translates this that there should be delay no longer. That's a mistranslation because the, the Greek word for delay is chronizo. You see that in Matthew 25, for example, where it says, while the bridegroom tarried or while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. This is not delayed. This is chronos, which translated means a period of time. Now, the Greek word for a point in time is the Greek word kairos, but this is the Greek word chronos, which means period of time, which is a perfect usage of the word for time for a prophetic period. So, a point in time is kairos, 12 o'clock at noon. That's a point in time. But a prophetic period, like the 2300 days, or the 1260 days, or the 1290, or the 1335, those are periods of time. And what Christ is swearing by an oath here is that there is no more prophetic time from 1844 to the second coming. Now, I find it amazing that some people still think that they're so smart they, that they can start setting dates for Sunday laws and the second coming and the close of probation and all of these things. Did you realize that you're going up against the oath of Jesus himself and because he could swear by no greater, he swears by himself that there's no more prophetic time after 1844? So if you think you're so smart that you can set dates, you're actually going up against the God of the universe. But that's not the main point here. There's a bigger point that Christ is making. After 1844, God has guaranteed, based on the second oath, that he will gather a people from after 1798. And by 1844, when there's no more prophetic time, what God is saying is, what will give force to my people, to the second Advent movement that I am raising up to be alive from 1844 to the second coming, is not time prophecy, but character development. And God is saying this, I guaranteed by an oath that I would have a people on the earth who would, ha would have faith and obedience like Abraham. I guaranteed that by an oath. But the children of Israel broke the promise of the covenant. The Christian church broke the, the promise of the covenant. And so Christ swears by an oath that his people will be no longer scattered after 1798. And then he's saying specifically from this prophecy in Revelation 10, 6, that after 1844, it's not going to be time prophecy that fuels the engine to the second advent movement. It's going to be something entirely different. And you'll see that now in verse 7. Here is what... Christ is swearing by an oath by that he says will be accomplished after 1844, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. What's the mystery of God? You know this from Colossians 1.27, but I'll read it to you so that you get it very clearly. Colossians 1.27 says, 
to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery of God that will be finished is Christ in you, the character of God being fully finished. Christ is swearing by an oath. My people are not going to be scattered after 1798, and from 1844 to the second coming, I am raising up a people from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, where I am clothed with a cloud and a rainbow is upon my head, where I'm going to write my law into the hearts and minds of my people, where they understand from this book that has been opened that I'm cleansing the sanctuary from sin, and when I cleanse the sanctuary from sin, I cleanse their hearts from sin. I will have a people where my character is fully formed within in the lives of my people. That is the mystery of God. And Christ is saying, I am guaranteeing by an oath that I will have a people on the earth who are like me in character. This is not fantasy. This is reality. Christ is guaranteeing that he will have a people upon the earth who have the degree of faithfulness and obedience that Abraham had when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The children of Israel forfeited the covenant. They sacrificed the prince of the covenant on the cross. The Christian church tried to change the covenant by changing the law of God from Sabbath to Sunday. But at the end of the world, God has a Sabbath-keeping people, a covenant-keeping people, who not only keep the letter of the law, but they keep the spirit of the law because Christ writes his law. Because Christ writes his law into our hearts and minds so that we have his character. Now, I want to take you to Ephesians 3 to just give you an even broader picture of this mystery of God. Paul says in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So what is this mystery? He says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is it? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mystery of God is also the gospel, but it's not simply the gospel declared, it's the gospel revealed. What does the gospel revealed look like? You go down to verse 16 of Ephesians 3. This is the mystery of God. It says in verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And notice verse 17, that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of God being finished, means that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. And you're like, how could that ever happen? Verses 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. I mean, Paul uses all the superlatives that he can think of for adjectives to tell us that God really can do this work in us. When Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, we have the faith of Jesus. We are filled with all the fullness of God, and God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Friends, this is what Christ is swearing by an oath, by himself, about. He swore by an oath to Abraham, saying, 
your faithfulness is a demonstration of the fear of God, just as the last generation will fear God and give glory to him. Your faithfulness and obedience is a demonstration of the faithfulness and obedience of all who will be your seed, who will be heirs of the promise that I am making with you. And so we see the children of Israel forfeited the covenant, the Christian church forfeited the covenant, but God's last day movement will be the fulfillment of that covenant. And so the prophetic destiny of Adventism is that God will have a people on the earth just before he returns who will be like Abraham when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice, just as Abraham was willing to offer up his only son. God's last day people will love not their lives unto the death. They will have faith and obedience and endurance. And God is saying, I am swearing by an oath that Abraham, there will be a people on the earth who will be like you. And then in Daniel 12, he says, I'm guaranteeing that my people will no longer be scattered. I will gather a people who will have the faith and obedience of Abraham. And in Revelation 10, he's saying, I'm coming down from heaven myself as the mighty angel to announce that I'm moving from the holy place to the most holy place to renew the covenant with my last day people, the second advent movement. I'm going to write my law into their hearts and minds and they will obey the way Abraham did. They will have faith the way Abraham had faith and they will be my demonstration to the on looking universe of what it means when you come to Revelation 14, 12, where God can say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is the oath that Christ has sworn by. And because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself to say, this is the people that I will have at the time that I come back. Friends, that's what he has called you to be. And that's what he has guaranteed that you can be. And so today, on this Sabbath morning, I just want to challenge you. Whatever you might be struggling with, I want you to just lay it on the altar the way Abraham laid Isaac on the altar. And God will give you the grace that you need to be that faithful saint at the end of the world. Amen. I'm just going to offer a word of prayer to close this message. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us a high calling. You've given us a prophetic destiny that we would be the final fulfillment of the, the oath that you made to Abraham. May that mystery of God be fulfilled in our lives. May we be found faithful when you come. And may we ever look to Jesus, the Prince of the Covenant, to fulfill these promises in our lives. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.